Hey everyone, hope you've had a great week. And I'll say, even though I, I lament not being with you live, even though I have to pretend that as I, I look at this camera, I'm looking at you, uh, it will never equate to actually be meeting together and seeing you face to face. But all that said, I am so glad that we do have the technology and the ability to continue to, to study together and walk through scripture together, specifically walking through this amazing apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation. It's a book, just as a few reminders, it's a book written near the end of the first century by the Apostle John. Uh, John was in exile. He was in exile, a prisoner, for declaring that Jesus was the actual true King of Kings and Lord of Lords and not Caesar. Uh, and he refused to worship the emperor over the resurrected, risen Lamb of God. So John was really an enemy of the state. But he was also a pastor. He was trying to encourage the church in the midst of obvious uh, darkness and pressure from Rome to either fear or follow the ways of Rome. But now he's also a seer, a, a prophet, who's been given this, this vision as an encouragement to himself, exiled and, and sitting on a rock on the Isle of Patmos, uh, but also an encouragement to the church, who is seeing only the power of Rome and its evils at work in front of them. But it's also an encouragement for you and I today, wondering if there is more than what our eyes see in the world. And so, as we have seen over the past few months, John has been invited to, to peer behind the curtain and see the things that are bigger, that, see that things are bigger than they seem. And that's what apocalypse means, an unveiling. And he's seeing Christ is above all, he's over all, and he will ultimately bring his justice to the evil of the world. Now, last week we looked at the effects that evil has had over the world. And we saw the, the saints calling out for justice. We saw those who, who wanted nothing to do with the lamb calling out who can stand, who, who can stand in front of the lamb on the day of God's justice and the day of God's judgment. And we're going to find our answer to that question today. And today we look at one of the most beautiful images in all of Revelation and really some would say in all of scripture. It's uh, an image, a vision that has given hope to the church almost since the church began. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Revelation chapter 7. And we're going to start by reading verses 1 to 3. It says this, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who have been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So John starts this section by saying, and this is, we have to pay attention to this, After this I saw four angels. Now, to say after this I saw is not the same as saying after this, this happened. We, we should not confuse after this I saw with after this, this happened, as if John is, is giving us a chronological layout. Throughout Revelation, it's, it's as if John is, is sometimes looking through different windows from different angles at often the same event. Some of them are repeats. Some of them are, are backing up chronologically and then re-watching from another viewpoint. Uh, many scholars believe uh, that's what's happening here. It's, it's the question has been posed by the world at the, at the end of the previous chapter, who can stand? Who can stand when God's judgment comes? Who will be able to make it through all of these things? When the all-seeing lamb comes to bring judgment on the dark powers at work in the world. And, and here, it's, it's as if the, the vision presses pause. 
hits reverse. And John looks at it again from a different angle. A few years back, uh, there was a movie starring Dennis Quaid, Matthew Fox, Forrest Whitaker called Vantage Point. It wasn't a hugely popular movie, but quite entertaining, I thought. Vantage Point was a a political thriller about an attempted assassination on the president of the United States. And, And what made the movie really entertaining was the fact that the story played itself over and over from eight different perspectives so that the the viewer gathered more and more information each time. So the event happened once, but more information and context was given with each retelling of the story in order to gain a, a more truthful account of what happened. It seems like something similar is happening here. The question is, who can stand? Who can stand through the conquest, the pain, the tribulation of chapter 6? The specific tribulation of the saints and the the final appearance of the almighty, all-seeing Lamb, the cosmic Christ, who who will open up the final judgments of God, both good and bad. Who can stand? Well, the answer in in chapter 7 is those who've been sealed, those who have pledged their allegiance to the Lamb. In verse 1, John sees four angels, kind of like guardians or, or gatekeepers of all that is allowed to happen on the earth. Maybe the same four creatures that, that we, we've heard about in, in the previous chapters. And here, they're commanded by another angel, maybe with authority over them, ascending from the sun and holding a seal, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. So what is this seal? What's this all about? Well, it's not like the seals that are holding the scroll closed. This is different. The scroll that we've been learning about that, that, that is opening up over time. This is a, a seal placed on God's people. It's about, and it means two things. One is it means belonging. And the second thing it, it means is security. First, it means belonging. It was, it was the practice in the first century secular world to, to mark servants on their foreheads so that everyone knew who they belonged to. It was a way of keeping them from being taken by others and, and identifying them with their master. Now, throughout the, the New Testament, the idea of belonging to Jesus held with it the idea of being purchased by Christ and owing everything to him and therefore re- referring to oneself as a bond servant or a willing slave of Christ. So when we talk about a seal on their forehead, that it's talking about who they belong to. And we'll see this later on when we talk about the sign of the beast on the forehead. So it's about belonging, but it's also about security. I mentioned before that, that seals were meant to guarantee that messages or shipments would, would reach their final destination and be opened by the right person. It meant that from beginning to end, it was safe. So the point here is that if you belong to the Lamb, you will make it unhindered to your final destination. And then we look at who is sealed. This is, this is so important. The servants of God, those who are, who are coming out of the great tribulation, it says in verse 14. We'll look at that in a little bit. Those in white robes. We've seen this group before a few times. But now we look from another angle. Verse 4 of Revelation 7 says this, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of, tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, do you sense a pattern? 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, And then I'll say, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin were all sealed, 12,000 from each tribe. 
Now, there's some interesting things to notice about this, this massive crowd. It seems to be listing the tribes of ancient Israel, but if, if we know the tribes listed in the Old Testament, this is a little different. For one thing, there's no tribe of Dan, which is listed in the Old Testament as one of the tribes. But Manasseh, one of Joseph's sons, and, and Joseph and Levi are included in this list of tribes, which were not traditionally included in the Old Testament list. Now, to be honest, I'm not sure why this, this list of the tribes looks so different, and, and most scholars aren't sure why, and, and really only speculate. But one of the most important things to notice in this list is the superiority of Judah. These lists usually went in order of importance of tribes, and we remember that the, the Messiah was meant to descend from the tribe of David, from the tribe of Judah. Jesus was descended from the tribe of Judah. So it makes sense that this would be the most important tribe on the list. You'll remember that Revelation 5.5 calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's a conquering lion. The order of things, who is in and who is out, are all shuffled with Jesus as the most important. But what about this number, these numbers, with 144,000 in total. This, this number is dripping with symbolism. Get ready for some math. 144,000 is 12 squared multiplied by 10 cubed, or 12 by 12 by 10 by 10 by 10. Now, if you're like me and you don't like math, that's okay. Don't, don't shut off because the math isn't the important part. It's, it's not the point. Just remember that 12 and numbers related to it, as we talked about before, represent those who love and worship God. And that the number 1,000 and those numbers related to it represent lots and lots and lots, especially when it's multiplied by itself. A really big and complete number. So with that, we have John sees a massive number of those who love God. And it is the right amount. But there's something else significant here because these numbers are used again in Revelation. You can flip up to Revelation 21 verse 16 where John is given a glimpse of the coming city of God's people. And the description goes like this. The, the city lies four square. Its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. So we have this massive cube as a city of God. Scholars say that 12,000 stadia is, is roughly equivalent to 1,500 miles, or more properly stated, approximately 2,000 kilometers. A city, 2,000 by 2,000 by 2,000 kilometers. But the number 12,000 would have stuck in the minds of the readers. That's what they would hear. The wall that surrounds the city, we, we learn, is 144 cubits, it says in verse 17. Now, a cubit was roughly the length between the elbow and the, the fingers, which was normally about 45 centimeters, depending on whether you, when you walked your, your hands drug on the ground like an ape. But normally, 45 centimeters. That would, that would make this wall around this massive city only 200 feet high. It's a very small wall for such a massive city. But for those reading Revelation for the first time, and for John taking in the number, not the actual height, the height would not matter so much as the numbers, which would stand out. They are highly symbolic. These numbers would immediately be associated back to the crowd of 144,000 numbered in chapter 7 with, with the seal of the Father and of the Lamb on their forehead. This is the city for God's people. This is the city for God's people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. This unpacks throughout Revelation. The 144,000 in chapter 7 are the new Jerusalemites. That means that you and I, who associate ourselves with the Lamb, who are 
what the Apostle Paul calls the true children of Abraham, those who persist and refuse to fear or follow Babylon, belong to this city. We're, we're part of this number in chapter 7. This is the fulfillment of a promise made all the way back in Genesis 12 at what we call the, the call of Abraham. God says to Abraham, the first of the Hebrew nation in Genesis 12, 2 to 3, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And one chapter later, God says to, to Abraham in Genesis 13, 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, uncountable, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. In other words, it'll never be counted. God tells Abraham, through you will be a blessing for all nations. And this unpacks throughout scripture, leading us to the person, the work, the death, the resurrection, and the reign of Jesus In his letter to to the Romans, quoting the Old Testament prophet Hosea, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 9, 24 to 26, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This does not mean that Israel is replaced. Paul says in verse 24, this, that it is Jews and Gentiles. Gentile meaning all those who are, not, who are non-ethnic Jews. But Israel's not replaced. Its, its boundaries have been abolished. And more are welcomed in. This shouldn't be a surprise to those of us who follow, who, who follow the story of Scripture. Remember, Revelation is not telling us anything new. It's just saying it in a new way. Something beautiful happens in the New Testament when it comes to those who give allegiance to Jesus. They they are given the same titles that that, that have always been saved for the nation of Israel. In their letters to the early church, both James and Peter address the church made up of both Jews and Gentiles as the diaspora. The diaspora, which was a word uh, up until the point of the church, which was used to describe the dispersed nation of Israel. And in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter calls, uh, calls the church a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These are words throughout the Old Testament that were used to clarify the chosenness of the people of Israel over other nations. But now it's applied to all those who call themselves a part of the church. And Paul drives this point home in Galatians 3.29. He says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And later in Galatians 6.16, he calls the churches God's Israel. He says, And as for you who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So to identify this great crowd in chapter 7 as a symbolic representation of the true Israel is very much in line with what Jesus created and what, with, and what the New Testament teaches. And we get more help in the second half of the chapter. We're, we're able to take a, a new vantage point of this crowd. John looks and sees a great multitude that no one could number. A large, uncountable number of all those who love and belong to God. And, and when we find ourselves back at the picture of Revelation 5 with angels and creatures and elders and multitudes worshiping, but, 
We learn more about this multitude than we learned in chapter 5. And then we learn in the first half of chapter 7. These are all those who belong to the Lamb. Verses 9 to 12 of chapter 7 say, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see how this this apocalypse of John, this this revelation of Jesus the Christ wants to continue to bring us to the throne room. Before and after tribulation, come to the throne. Before calamity in your life, in the midst of calamity, after calamity, come to the throne. As already mentioned, this is the new Israel. The, The borders have been knocked down through the work of Christ at the cross, creating a new kingdom. And it's beautiful, a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual kingdom. Imagine the worship. Imagine the beauty of this, of this vision. Imagine the beauty of the church when this vision is played out in our local gatherings of worship. This is a beautiful new kind of, of kingdom nation who, who, interestingly, does battle not with with against evil, not with weapons, but with palm branches. Palm branches, which once welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem and that, that, that in old times signified the return of a conquering king. They're declaring the battle is won. This is, this is good news for the suffering church, asking how long, asking, have you given up on us, God? Verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, John says, who are, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The word tribulation, or in the Greek, thlipsis, means unbearable pressure. And although the idea of the great tribulation has been a focus point for many as kind of a defined time of heavy-duty pressure on the church, I have to say that seems to ignore, again, that tribulation has been great for many throughout history and that it still is right now for many. But here in chapter 7, there is, there's no reason to think that this is a different tribulation than what the church has suffered since the time Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom. And he talked about persecution and the hatred the world would have for his church. The the great tribulation is the ongoing tribulation that happens when the kingdom of God collides with the kingdoms and ideologies and evils of the world. The language of this elder in verse 14 is is also worth noticing when we we try to understand this tribulation. I love this. The the elder asks John, who are these people? Who are these people in the white robes? And John kind of says, Wait, wait, who's, who's leading this apocalypse anyway? Isn't that your job? You tell me. I wonder if the elder is kind of uh, is seeing if this is maybe this, uncon- this continued unfolding and revisiting of this cosmic throne room image is, is taking root in John's mind, if he's learning anything yet. And John looks back at the elder and goes, you tell me who these people are. These are the ones coming out of, he says. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The language in the Greek implies that this is an ongoing happening. It isn't a finished tribulation. This tribulation 
has happened. It's still happening. And when John looks, it will continue to happen afterwards until Christ returns. When did it start? Some would argue, and I think John might agree, that it started when the kingdom of God broke into the world through Jesus. When John writes one of his other bestsellers, the Gospel of John, he begins in John chapter 1 by declaring that, that Christ's arrival, with Christ's arrival, light has entered into the darkness and darkness is battling against it. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, it says, uh, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Something significant came in the wake of Jesus' incarnation. Darkness was being challenged. Its, its power was declared in the resurrection of Jesus. And the tribulation that comes about when one power pushes against another has been taking place ever since. Even John's opening of the book of Revelation places himself in the tribulation. In Revelation 1 verse 9, I, John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He, he talks about his own tribulation right there, being a part of it. The tribulation, the, the pressure to fear or follow the powers of the world is the tribulation that we are called to. And we feel the battle in big and small ways from, from spiritual blindness and the, the lifeless pursuits that we as, as followers of the Lamb are tempted to conform to, confront or confirm. And we see the tribulation in all those who daily around the world are being added to the names of the martyred saints. Imprisoned, dispersed, as we remember a few years ago, kneeling on the beaches in northern Libya to be beheaded. And the promise today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. Those who follow the Lamb, who bow to Him and Him alone, will be clean before Him like white robes set aside for His purposes. I love the backwards imagery we get here because it seems so opposite to what we think is the way of things. Their robes are white because they've been washed in blood. They've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, it says in verse 14. Have you ever tried to get blood out of a white t-shirt? I used to do it all the time. I used to get blood in my tail. I wasn't always a pastor. I'm just joking. <laughs> that, this blood is, is the purchased blood of the lamb. Christ's blood actually cleans and brings purity. But that, but that makes sense because the lion is also a lamb. Christ's power is manifest in weakness. Those who are seemingly in danger of being stamped out and forgotten by history, by the world, will one day overcome it and reign. Things are bigger than they seem. Verses 15 and 17 end with this great celebration. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will be protected forever. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their Shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, like Psalm 23. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Church, this is the promise for those who belong to the Lamb. Eventually, there will be a continued enjoyment of his presence. 
That's why we worship. That's why we gather. Some have a hard time thinking of their eternity all caught up in worship, like we would get bored or something. We're so used to checking our phones five minutes into our worship service as a church. But that's to forget that our, our very selves, our very beings, heart, mind, and soul, our physical, emotional, and spiritual selves were created for that purpose. And we will find our greatest fulfillment when we are given the pleasure and the joy to do so in the presence of the Alpha and Omega beginning and end, the Lamb who was slain to purchase and bring many to himself. That's the true trajectory of our lives. The fulfillment of of all who are meant to be, all that we are meant to be. Church, continue to persevere. The Lamb has not forgotten you. You have been sealed, and one day you will be delivered to and celebrate in the throne room of your King. Church, I love you. I miss you. I can't wait to see you face to face again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and may he give you his peace. God bless you, church.